Manan Ahmed is Associate Professor of History at Columbia University. He is the author of two books and is working on the third. His most recent book is titled A Book of Conquest, The Chajnama and Muslim Origins in South Asia. The book traces and challenges the narratives of Muslim conquests in the history of South Asia and, in doing so, provides an important corrective to the divisions between Muslim and Hindu that often defines Pakistani and Indian politics today. Manan's upcoming book is titled The Lost of Hindustan, a book that promises to explore the political and historiographic idea of Hindustan that was a British colonial project. Manan is also the author of Where the Wild Frontiers Are, Pakistan and the American Imagination, a collection of blog essays that interrogates the imagination or the lack thereof on American elites' perspectives on Pakistan. I invited Manan to the Dean's Table to talk about the process of becoming a historian, to reflect on his scholarship that challenges conventional wisdom about the origins of Muslims in South Asia, and to give us some insight on how he fuses his scholarship with public engagement on contemporary issues facing South Asia. Manan, welcome to the Dean's Table. No, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So um, I would like to start with a sentence I read in the acknowledgement section of your monograph, A Book of Conquest. It is the very first sentence, and it reads as follows, quote, in the summer of 1995, I was an undocumented fast food worker who walked off the street into the offices of Matthew S. Gordon and Lena Dietrich at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, and asked for their help in becoming a historian. Tell me about your journey of becoming a historian. <laughs> Uh, absolutely, yeah. Um, so I guess the background to that story is that I um, I came to the United States in order to uh, become a computer engineer, hmm. um, and uh, that was something my parents had. My my father was working as an electrical engineer and was very keen that I follow uh, in the you know family tradecraft. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that for a couple of years, and then I basically lost my, uh, I guess, will to remain an engineer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't know what the next step was. And during that process, I also um, was no longer an active student and fell out of uh, status, so I mm-hmm. became undocumented. Mm-hmm. And that lasted for about four or five years. Oh, really? Where... Um, huh. Um, <clears throat> I was in many kinds of uh, customer service, service-oriented work mm-hmm. in the service industry. And during this process, I kept kind of reading books uh, and uh, basically keeping a note of what kind of books I was reading. So I had no, uh, let's just say, model that I wanted to be a historian at that time. I was just reading things. How did you select the books? I actually just purchased them by weight. So there was a warehouse <laughs> next to the Taco Bell where I worked. Uh-huh. And you could go there with a bag, and you could fill the bag with as many books you want, and the bag cost one dollar. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, these were these were remainder to texts. Um, so I would just buy these books for a dollar. Randomly selecting books. I or? mean, I started to kind of, I, I, if I remember correctly, I think I started with biographies, mm-hmm. and I think I went 
really deep into the history of psychology for a long time. <laughs> okay. Um, and then eventually I, I got this. I, 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 if I, let me see if I can remember this correctly. Daniel Boorstin mm -hmm. was an American historian. And I read uh, these books of his. One was called The Discoverers. Mm -hmm. And they were kind of big picture world history books. And I really just uh, agreed with them in the sense of the scale and the writing. And I disagreed with them in the sense that the Muslim world or the people of color were absent from this world. that right. you know, We didn't discover anything. We were the discovered. Hmm. And I didn't have that kind of language, but I, I recognized the lack of, mm -hmm. of you know, uh, a history that I was familiar with from my own background. Mm -hmm. So I went to the library and I looked up in the who's who. This is 1993 or 94. I looked mm -hmm. up in the who's who, his address, and mm -hmm. he was the librarian of Congress. So I wrote him a letter. Really? And I said, I would like to basically do what you did, as in write this kind of history book. Uh -huh. How do I do this? Like, how do you do that? And I mailed it out. And uh, a few months later, I got a letter back. Was it was a pet response? No, no, no. It, no. it uh -huh. was a response from the from uh -huh. him, and he said thank you. And because I in my letter I said, well, you did this wrong because <laughs> I know for a fact that you know we invented algebra. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, so you had some critical perspectives, and uh, and uh, so he wrote back and he said, you know, thank you for your letter, and you know, I I think uh, you you are correct, as in, and I and I feel like you mm. you can be a historian, and mm -hmm. and. And that was kind of a moment where I, I said, oh, okay, one can become this. He didn't, he wasn't born mm -hmm. with this book in his hand, uh, so, mm -hmm. so to speak. And uh, at that point, I was living in a very small town in South Ohio. Mm -hmm. And one day, just kind of driving, chanced upon this campus, which was the Miami, Ohio campus. Was it in the town, Oxford? Oxford, the, Ohio, the, yeah, exactly. Okay. And it was a random Thursday or Friday, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, it was summer, so there were no students around. Mm -hmm. um, and we just parked the car, and I mm -hmm. just asked someone, like, where's the history department? And they <laughs> pointed to a building. I went mm -hmm. inside the building. All the doors were closed mm -hmm. except one, in mm -hmm. which a, in retrospect, a young man was unpacking some books. Uh -huh. And I knocked on the door, and he was Matthew Gordon, mm -hmm. who was a Columbia graduate. He had just graduated from Columbia and gotten his assistant professorship. Huh. And I said to him, I would like to become a historian. Mm -hmm. And he said, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, do you have a BA? And I said, no, I don't have a BA uh -huh. in history. I mean, I had a BA in computer uh -huh. science. And, right. and he said, well, you have to get a BA in history, and then you have to get a PhD, and then only, and then this. And then he was very nice and very patient and very lovely. And he, mm -hmm. <laughs> he sat with me over the next weeks. He really? helped me write a application that he um, got me admitted into Miami, Ohio. Huh. And I did my BA there in history. Uh, so you did another four years yeah, or another I, undergraduate I, yeah, degree? Yeah, I did, an, I did a full undergraduate degree. Huh. Um, and then Lynn Dietrich was the other person I met. She was an art historian, a very, mm -hmm. very influential person for me. And both of them basically gave me the training and t like literally taught me how to write in a sense because I had never written a word in mm -hmm. English, 
and yeah that was that's right. how i and and so from there i went into a phd program in chicago right we'll get there in a moment but yeah. this is very interesting so what are your thoughts on mentorship giving your own introduction to the discipline of history right uh, by these mentors i have never not responded to an email because you don't know. You don't know mm -hmm. who writes to you and how you intersect with them. And I think the lesson I learned, which is a lesson I keep, is that the pe people who show up at your door, who send you an email, um, they deserve your attention. And mm -hmm. I think if, if this young assistant professor hadn't given me attention at that very moment that I needed the attention... I don't know if I had the will to follow through. Like, mm -hmm. you know, there's a, there's a storyline where I show up randomly and the person says, I'm sorry, I'm just starting this job here. I don't know. Please go right. to the admissions office. Right. And that would have been the it. And I don't know mm. how the yeah. next things would have. Right. So I think for the mentorship, the, the question that has always been foremost to me is like, how can I be as ethical to everyone that comes into contact with me? Mm -hmm as these individuals, Lynn Dietrich and Matthew Gordon, were to me. And uh, I've been lucky enough that even in a graduate program, I kept encountering mm -hmm. individuals who have been generous, who have been ethical. Mm -hmm. And so the question of mentorship has really been shaped by my own personal history and, and recognizing that you know, people come at you from very different backgrounds. And it's not like everyone isn't already trained, doesn't already mm -hmm. have the answers. So mm -hmm. to, to recognize that is um, perhaps, I think, a very important step. Right. So that's interesting. So several years later after this encounter with these mentors, you start graduate school mm -hmm. at the University of Chicago. What was that experience like? It was quite intense. I mean, University of Chicago is a is a uh, especially the programs that I was interested in, the Near East and uh, South Asia. They're they're very philologically centered. Mm -hmm. They're they're on the Germanic model. A lot of German Jewish faculty joined mm -hmm. the university in the first half and the second half of the twentieth century. Mm -hmm. It was something that I was, you know, in a sense, I was not prepared for. I'm coming from a very right. small liberal arts college, right. and my peers were coming from. Uh, research R1 mm -hmm. institutions mm -hmm. and had many years of language training that mm -hmm. I didn't have. Right. And it took me a few few years to kind of find myself mm -hmm. as a student. And again, it was a lot of kind of thinking alongside intellectuals who were willing to sit with me and explain, mm -hmm. you know, the sh quote unquote Chicago way. <laughs> right, right, right. It's, which is a particular way I've, t I've which, been told. <laughs> yeah, which is a very particular way and they insist right. on it. And so, right. um, but I was lucky in the sense that Chicago at that moment was a place where some of the leading scholars for post-colonial thought mm -hmm. uh, as well as kind of people who were thinking about questions of globalization were there mm -hmm. uh, when I joined. Mm -hmm. um, and then some people who were very influential and went on to be my, my colleagues here, like Sheldon Pollock, oh, uh, okay. where he was the chair of the department mm -hmm. when I was there, ended up kind of shaping a lot of my intellectual work. Okay. So then tell me about your book, A Book of Conquest. Any Chicago influences? Because <laughs> um, I suspect it's from your dissertation. But I, I just want to quote here. One reviewer notes, it is an innovative, refreshing, and provocative intellectual history that makes a major intervention in debates surrounding the question of Islam's 
Advent in the South Asian subcontinent. Minister Revere goes on to say, quote, it aims at dismantling the dominant origins myth that portrays Islam's encounter with India as conquest. So tell us more about this project. What is it really about? Right. Um, in a sense, I grew up, before I came to the United States, I grew up in, in Lahore, in Pakistan, mm-hmm. and I grew up in a military dictatorship. Uh, mm-hmm. So I came to my political as well as kind of social, um, you know, maturity as, mm-hmm. a, as a 13, 14-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a very, very old city, um, mm-hmm. as in we have accounts as far back as 4th, 5th century, mm-hmm. and it's been habited since then. Mm-hmm. And it's a city also that um, is part of a, a a network that connects it to Kabul and Delhi on the one end mm-hmm. and and the Indian Ocean on the other end mm-hmm. because of the rivers that intersect it. Mm-hmm. So and it's it's uh, I mean in 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 wide uh, kind of cultural terms, it's always been known as a seat of intellectual uh, okay. poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, religious and sacral power mm-hmm. so not 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 state the you know mm-hmm. very little uh, i mean though uh, so it was it was a site of the f- kind of the one of the key sites for print publication in the early part of the 20th century so okay. most of the presses were there a lot mm-hmm. of authors were there mm-hmm. a little bit of kind of paris vibe in terms mm-hmm. of intellectuals okay. who who congregated there in the 20s and 30s by the time I was in Lahore, Lahore was the seat of political unrest against the military dictatorship. Mm. And so a lot of my colleagues, a lot of my peers, we were actively f- resisting uh, Ziaul Haq, who was, who was a dictator who, um, uh, which once he had taken power, kind of oriented himself in alliance with the United States as mm-hmm. someone fighting the uh, proxy war in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, the You know, this is the kind of birth of the Taliban as we um, we, hmm. we all know the argument that he used internally mm-hmm. to the citizens of Pakistan was that we Pakistanis are not at all like the Hindus of India mm-hmm. and that Pakistan exists in a geospatial and cultural relationship with the Middle East mm-hmm. and is no longer part of um, the Indian subcontinent. Mm-hmm. So even if we are ethnically, racially, linguistically from South Asia, we need to be imagining ourselves as uh, Arab and looking towards the Middle East. So that's what you hear in your classroom, your school textbook. Mm-hmm. When I came home, my family had a long-standing uh, sort of uh, commitment to Urdu poetry. Mm-hmm. And so we would read, uh, me and my mother especially, we mm-hmm. would read these poets who f- uh, were speaking in a lexical register that dated back three, four hundred years and connected to Dakkan and Delhi in, in profound ways. Mm-hmm. So in a way, in, in at home, you're reading a, a poem that has n- nothing to do with the Middle East. <laughs> it has everything to do with what we call quote unquote India because mm-hmm. that's the political border right and uh, and I think when I began graduate school, one of the puzzles that I wanted to solve mm-hmm. was how 
Zhao Huq, as a dictator, was able to marshal an argument that uh, 160 million uh, people connected geographically to a, to a subcontinent didn't actually belong to that subcontinent. Hmm. And in order to kind of uh, rethink that, I began looking at the source around which this narrative was constructed. Mm -hmm. And the way that the military state constructed this narrative was, and it, 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 it also inherited it, but the bulk of it was that there was this general by the name of Muhammad bin Qasim, mm -hmm. who in the 8th century came as a part of a military campaign to Sindh, which is right in the Arabian uh, Gulf, currently close to Karachi, the mm -hmm. mega city of Karachi. And the argument was that this general in the 8th century, 712, was the first citizen of Pakistan because he was from Arabia, from Syria. Oh. And that Pakistan, even though it was founded in 1947, mm -hmm. was founded by this, that, that's the founding father of it. Oh, I see. And so they do, in a sense, our school textbook made this radical jump that goes from 712 CE to 1947. <laughs> And right. we were told that we had to be like Muhammad bin Qasim. And, you know, just very similar mm -hmm. story as in your, your, your Washington, yeah, your Hamilton. Yeah. or Founding fathers. Founding mm -hmm. fathers. Right. So the book is really, in a sense, forcing us to rethink that history, to mm -hmm. rethink this jump. And the way that I imagined doing it in my dissertation ended up being very different than the way I did it in the book I published. But it involved us uh, as scholars, uh, scholars especially of South Asia, mm -hmm. to confront a very basic prejudice that I think the British colonial regime mm -hmm. um, a, you know, embedded in it. And that's the prejudice that said Muslims are really in Middle East. They're in Mecca and Medina, in oh, Arabia. That's interesting. And if you're a Muslim in Indonesia, or if you're a Muslim in China, or if you're a Muslim in South Asia then you're foreign. Hmm. And this is absolutely backwards if you compare it to the question of Christianity, right? The Christianity right. is not actually Bethlehem right. and, right. Uh, you know, um, as in you could be Christian um, in any part of the world right. and, and then have an additional identity that you ascribe to. Mm -hmm. And this was really the kind of colonial way of, you know, what, what the older historiography called divide and conquer, right? Mm -hmm. So creating a division between different part segments of the society, which more or less got internalized because the nationalism that came into being in mm -hmm. the early part of the 20th century um, also recognized this as a winning strategy. Mm -hmm. And we see this, obviously, we see this now with the idea that, you know, there's only someone some very particular subset of people mm -hmm. that can be counted in the make America great again, right? The America is very is a very small group of people. Right. So, so maybe you're getting to my next question, mm -hmm. which is what are your thoughts on the amended Citizenship Act in India? Yeah. I mean, it's a, this is this is the direct correlation right. precisely to the, the problem that I'm just raising. Could you tell our listeners what's that act all about? Absolutely. So it this is a party that uh, the BJP, which is currently in, in mm -hmm. power and has been in power, this is the second term mm -hmm. in uh, India. In India, mm -hmm. and but this particular uh, strain of uh, argument that they have been using have been there since the early 80s, and mm -hmm. really in 1992 when a mosque was demolished in Ayodhya, and the argument is 
um, as my forthcoming book will argue, mm-hmm. is an argument that was made in 1905-1906. Mm-hmm. And the argument was that the word Hindustan, Hindu in the word Hindustan, meant mm-hmm. that Hindus are the only inheritors and residents and citizens of this, what becomes Republic of India. Now, the roots of this uh, what's called the quote-unquote two-nation theory mm-hmm. are something that I tackled in the Book of Conquest, that this uh-huh. is the colonial state's intervention into this history. But that logic is picked up by nationalism, mm-hmm. both Indian nationalism uh, of this very recent variety and Pakistani nationalism of the 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. in order to make the argument that only Muslims belong in Pakistan and only Hindus belong in India. Mm-hmm. Now, there are 300 million Muslims in India. There are 30 million non-Muslims in Pakistan. These individuals are then asked by the state to prove their citizenships, to oh. prove their sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. And so the new law that's been passed, there's two laws. There's the National Registry, in mm-hmm. which everyone has to prove that they are in India. Uh, citizens, and then this uh, Citizenship Act that is asking them to register, if giving them a path to citizenship mm-hmm. if they are um, refugees, but not of Muslim origins uh, or from Pakistan, mm-hmm. etc. So uh, the net result is precisely to argue that India can only be a space where Hindus can live mm. and to... Um, expel those that are considered to be outsiders. In this particular case, the Indian state is saying that in the Northeast, we have uh, Rohingya and Bangladeshis who Mm -hmm. are coming in and we have to expel them. But the logic of the law could be applied to any Muslim who happens to be in the Republic of India. Mm. Yeah. I want to switch gears a bit and I want to talk about your public engagement through your scholarship. You blog. You've been featured on news shows like Democracy Now. You've uh, been involved in online projects that focus on new scholarship. And you put together a collection of essays and a book aimed at a public audience. It's titled Where the Wild Frontiers Are. So in that book, you mentioned that your purpose was to disrupt narratives on South Asian history. You also mentioned that some faculty in your graduate program told you and I'm quoting here, the public space is already lost. Um, do you believe that? You've written quite a bit of op-eds. Um, yeah. oh, no, absolutely, I don't believe it. As in, <laughs> I don't believe my, my erstwhile advisors. <laughs> right, right. Tell us about that, that work. So, you and, know, and, 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 that, and that collection of essays. Absolutely. Who was your intended audience? Uh, so, again, this is, I mean, I started the uh, graduate program in 99. And... Uh, when uh, September 11th happened, when the attacks happened on Wall Trade Center, I was in London doing mm. research. So I was in, in the British Library that day. Um, and I came out and I was one of the people who were, you know, because air traffic was stopped for for almost, you know, 10 days. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was one of the people who couldn't um, come back. And I was also, you know, a Pakistani passport holder. So um, 9-11 really... You know, those of us who were in graduate school or in, in this intellectual environment, 9-11 really forced us to um, 
rethink our relationship with the public. That it wasn't passive. It wasn't a choice. Like, especially if we were identified by by others as being Muslim or or having mm-hmm. a particular relationship to to countries that were identified as a source of danger. You know, so um, George W. Bush had this axis of evil mm-hmm. um, that he <laughs> identified. Right. And, you know, my scholarship was on the axis of evil. Um, and at the moment, I re- remember very acutely that I went to my advisors who were scholars of immense credibility mm-hmm. and, and scholars of colonization, scholars of decolonization. And I said to them, that it's very important that you speak up because mm-hmm. all we were hearing was that it, you know, the war in Afghanistan was correct, the war on Iraq was correct, mm-hmm. and no one was speaking up to say that here's a historical worldview or here's the reason in which these wars are a bad idea. Mm-hmm. And and as you read in that quote, my advisors or my scholars that I was being trained by said, you know, um, this country is is mm-hmm. convinced that it must go to war. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing we can do about it. Mm-hmm. And I specifically said to one of my advisors, like, I mean, you were you were one of the big scholars of Islam. You should write to uh, Chicago Tribune, the n- local newspaper, an op-ed about you know the question of Islam and how it's been shaped. And he said, look, this mm-hmm. is not it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was a, a a kind of a strategy of quietism, I, I might say, or mm-hmm. re- or or removal from the public sphere as intellectuals especially intellectuals who were Muslim or intellectuals who mm-hmm. were uh, who felt themselves in danger uh, opening up to um, I mean Rashid Khalidi who's now my colleague was one of the mm. one of the scholars who was speaking out because he had been speaking about the question of Palestine for so long mm-hmm. and I think he was receiving at that time a lot of negative attention mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I think other colleagues who didn't have that experience mm-hmm. were reticent to participate in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I began blogging precisely because I didn't believe that the public sphere was lost and that uh-huh. I didn't have a role to play in it. I mean, I was just a graduate student in mm-hmm. second year grad school. I claimed no expertise in anything. Is this your introduction into being a public intellectual? Absolutely, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I worked in Taco Bell. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, and well, so I, I had I worked I, at Burger King. There for, you go. So, so you know. we, we know how to talk to, you know, so right. the public is a, a question of service. <laughs> right, right. Um, but that was exactly, so after 9-11, I, I, I began by, people would ask me, I, I went to, um, what do you call them? The... Columbus, Knights of Columbus. Ah, really? These lodges. Yeah, this very kind of middle of the road yeah, spaces. These, these, these very these lodges, and they asked me to come and speak to them about Islam. Huh. And how were you received? Um, you, you know, they listened to me. This, is this in Chicago? This is in Chicago. Wow. This is in Chicago. This is in Ohio because I still uh-huh. had contacts in Ohio. So I started with there. I just would, go, and then how did you get these invitations? Um, because people knew that I was studying Islam, uh-huh. like people who were in the community in Ohio, and then they, you know, there was an actual genuine um, cry from the public, like mm-hmm. we want to hear more. So, so I started with these uh, nights lodges. Um, mm. I went to libraries, um, and then I I began to. 
um, and I because of my computational background, mm-hmm. I, I knew how to set up a blog, and I set one up, mm-hmm. and I started writing on it. And that quickly became a place where, especially graduate students and junior faculty mm-hmm. uh, who were studying questions of Islam from various backgrounds, started to congregate. And I want to say within two years, mm-hmm. we had a, a very substantive public presence. I mean, mm-hmm. I was invited by New York Times to write my first op-ed, basically huh. because I was blogging and uh-huh. on these issues. Yeah. And you know, Did I'm, you find the wor- work rewarding? Did you think you were making a difference? I, I think, I mean, I guess I never asked myself in, in those terms of making mm-hmm. a difference, but I definitely never felt that I was speaking into a vacuum. Hmm. I always felt that there was a there was a dialogue. I mean, I got a lot of negative attention as well, mm-hmm. um, but there was always a dialogue. There was always a, a positive mm. uh, relationship that I always, always, always had. Right. So this is interesting to me because we get a lot of um, perspectives on you know public engagement mm-hmm. that American society is too ideologically polarized. Yeah. And so it seems as though you were talking to people on the opposite end mm-hmm. who were receptive. Have you seen a shift? In, in that moment from where we are today, at least in American society? It's a good question. I mean, I remember one of my radio shows that I went to was a very conservative radio mm-hmm. host. Um, and he had me on in order to basically make a case against, at that point, this must be 2004, mm-hmm. um, expanding the war in Iraq to Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, which he was convinced of. Mm-hmm. And I went there and we we spoke for about two hours and it was a call-in show so people could mm-hmm. call in. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone who was calling in was a supporter of Iraq war and was a supporter of kind of expanding the theater. Mm-hmm. I, I remember after the show ended, he said to me, you know, it's good that you were able to articulate your position and hold on to it because we just don't see a informed principled other side and you see like no war in Iran uh, or no war Mm -hmm. but there's no depth to that but you were able to explain things that didn't come through Mm -hmm. and I don't think I convinced him Mm -hmm. but I think he listened to me which Mm -hmm. is a different that I think is important to hold on to Mm -hmm. Um, I think as scholars as experts as informed uh, citizens it's our duty to mm-hmm. contribute our, you know, which is always going to be more complex, more mm-hmm. nuance, mm-hmm. more history, more mm-hmm. theoretical mm-hmm. to the public discourse. Mm-hmm. I think it's a mistake to say that the public discourse is black and white. Mm-hmm. And if we are to engage in it, we have to be black and white. Mm-hmm. I think our commitment to scholarship has always been it, within our scholarly circles is always to a finer, gr- more gritty, more granular, more um, more reformed outlook. Mm-hmm. And I think that those habits and those skills and those training, um, we as people who are uh, situated in the academy, mm-hmm. uh, I think we have to take those, those skills and those positions to the public discourse. Mm. Not to become black or white, but rather to insist upon the granularity, to insist upon the history, mm-hmm. the hi- his- insist upon the contextuality mm-hmm. because no one else 
is trained and or able to do that. And I think that's a unique position that we hold in the academy or right. as academics. Right. So a little bit more about your blog, Chapati Mysteries. Mm-hmm. Where did you get that title? Uh, so the Chapati Mystery, so the title is a, is a nod to a mystery that the mm-hmm. British colonial regime was forced to stare at for mm-hmm. a long time. Mm-hmm. And this is the the what's known as the kind of uh, the in the, the we call it the uprising, but in the colonial terms, it was called the Sepoy Rebellion. And this is in 1857. It began in 1857, lasted for a couple of years, and this was the first uh, major mm-hmm. uh, indigenous uh, attempt to overthrow the um, the colonization of East India Company in North India, and. Uh, the reason it became that the colonial state after it had crushed the rebellion became obsessed with chapatis which are these mm-hmm. breads non-breads that you may mm-hmm. you may order at any restaurant indian restaurant or pakistani restaurant you may go to bangladeshi mm-hmm. was that the colonial state was convinced that the network of information through which the rebels had o- coordinated with each other was carried by these chapatis that held secret meanings and the idea was these, that baked into this bread <laughs> were messages. Huh. And they became obsessed with cracking that code. And it became, and you know, this would be a familiar story to those of us who have worked on um, slave rebellions mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. other kinds, you know, where songs, uh, yeah. songs and colors and, mm-hmm. you know, symbols became imbued with meaning by the, by the colonizer and the slave owner. Mm-hmm. Um, so the chapati became such a such a thing. So after the uh, rebellion was crushed and um, a lot of uh, the rebels were executed, brutally executed and killed and enslaved and, and taken and sent to prison in the Andaman Islands, um, inquest was held about the meaning of the chapati. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as a graduate student, but perhaps in my own sensibility, I, I really responded to this idea that there are meanings that that are secret from the from the powers that be that hold communities together mm-hmm. and the colonial state couldn't crack this and shouldn't crack this and will never crack this <laughs> uh, so the mystery of the chapati was what does it mean <laughs> oh, yeah, i see so you probably already mentioned this already but you use a very specific term um, to talk about your scholarship or what maybe scholarship should be you you used the phrase process-based scholarship mm-hmm. um, can you say more about what you mean by process-based scholarship? I mean, one of the things that I'm really interested in is contextualizing the ways in which scholarship emerges from activism and mm-hmm. and goes towards pedagogy. Hmm. And I think both of those venues are ways in which we perform different steps as scholars and as citizens and as activists. And I think by looking at the kind of fullness of our intellectual worlds and seeing how different types of narrative get deployed in different ways, and as we deploy them, um, I think is very important for us as scholars to kind of be aware of it as a methodology and and to deploy it. Um, I think oftentimes, even with graduate students nowadays, um, I find a reticence in recognizing that their role as a teacher, their role as a citizen, and their role as a scholar are codependent and intermingled. And I I think students 
want, maybe perhaps wish for a more rigid separation between mm. these processes because it makes, in all the other precarities, it makes certain sense, I think, to say, oh, if I can just focus on this, this is what it is. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's a disservice to our intellectual worlds mm -hmm. to insist on that separation. Um, so that's where, I, you know, I think I try my best to um, write from a perspective that is very cognizant of the various processes that I am a part of. And I also try to envision my scholarship speaking in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not simply the product of a monograph, and it's not simply a product of, you know, in sort of one, uh, not just a classroom, but mm -hmm. there is a process that connects everything. So, Manan, describe for me the group for experimental methods in a humanistic research. Um, XP method. So it, it, we are a group of scholars based in, in the history department, in the English department, uh, computer science, mm -hmm. um, sociology, um, in the library. And we are scholars at different ranks. So mm -hmm. uh, everyone from undergraduate to professor. Mm. And we are a group that does uh, what we call mobilized humanities. We do projects that are response to specific events and intellectual work that we think is of, of use uh, to the broader world. And what we began by kind of thinking about was how to, um, in response, for example, to particular events in mm -hmm. the world, how do we as social science and humanities scholars mobilize ourselves? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we started doing projects such as in the wake of Hurricane Maria, the destruction in Puerto Rico, hmm. a mapping project that brought together students and faculty and staff to hmm. draw maps where at the moment there were no maps for rescue workers to understand what was happening. Oh, okay. Um, when the southwestern uh, borderlands uh, spaces were categorized as a no-pass zone by the Trump administration and mm -hmm. then families were being apprehended um, in the summer of 2018, uh, we uh, began a project to kind of map ICE mm -hmm. detention centers and the presence of ICE across the United States. And so w the idea here is that we are all scholars, mm -hmm. whether we work in the library or we work in a particular department, and then we can produce something in a very short period of time uh -huh. that can be utilized for pedagogy, used in classroom, could be used by journalists mm -hmm. who have a general training, and we have a specialized training. Mm -hmm. So they create something from a generalist perspective, uh, but we can create something from a specialized perspective. And so the idea with these uh, projects has always been to collapse these boundaries between classroom, scholarship, and even within the university, we have boundaries between disciplines and staff and faculty and graduate students and undergraduate. You know what I mean? Like there's mm -hmm. lots of hierarchies. Right. Um, and so the Group for Experimental Method is really a project-based space where we are committed to the idea of non-hierarchical collaborative work. Mm -hmm. uh, that is short-term and very focused. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it doesn't extend, you know, we do very small specific projects. Mm -hmm. um, everyone gets equal credit 
and mm. we aim this to be out for, uh, facing outwards uh, right. aim this for consumption so the torn apart project that we did in the summer of 2018 ended up uh, being heavily used by other colleagues in the journalism in oh, really? other in other departments other libraries and i think contributed to kind of people realizing the footprint of ice in this country when that conversation hadn't started yet i mean you know it's it's a much more a visible conversation now mm-hmm. um a couple of years later but um i think that was certainly coming from this philosophy of kind of coming together mm-hmm. and using our scholarship to do something rather than you know rather than cordoning our scholarship right. and saying right. let's work here as activists no <laughs> we are scholars let's work as activists mm-hmm. from our scholarly perspective more like scholar activists more like scholar activists yeah absolutely i mean mm-hmm. um, the late edward said had a lot of uh, mean things to say about you know what he called the uh, scholar warriors i think you know the the <laughs> right. people who were advocating for war in middle east um and um, i think there's a positive version of that <laughs> okay <laughs> right 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 so i actually have a final question uh, so manan you're a historian so you're very good at remembering dates you just told me where you were you know doing 9/11 right you're in a british library yeah do you remember where you were on december 15th last year Were you 38,000 feet somewhere? All oh, right. <laughs> yes, I was. I was yeah. in 38,000 feet. Did you get some <laughs> important news? I did. I did. It was a phone call from my department chair, uh-huh. Adam Costo, informing me that I've been um, given tenure at Columbia. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank uh, you. so you do have good memories. Well, thanks for coming to the Dean's Table. This has been fun. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. The Dean's Table is produced by Ursula Sommer with production assistance from Jack Riley. Our technical engineers are AJ Mangone, Ariana Sullivan, and John Wepler. Our researchers are Emma Flaherty and Angeline Lee. Our logo is by Jessica Lillian. Our music is by Imperial. I'm Dean Harris. <laughs> <laughs>